Welcome to Old Fashioned Finance, the podcast that mixes cocktails and high finance. I'm your host, Jason Demland, and I am joined as always and in the future by my good friend and fellow money muddler, Caleb Frankert. Jason, can a podcast about finance be entertaining? Not without alcohol. Well, all right, let's mix it up. Yeah! (laughs) Yeah! Hey, man, how's it going today? It's going well. How are you? I am also well. I have a a good outlook on life. I love September weather. Oh, it's the best. October is pretty good, though, too. It's it's also good, but I just like where we're not just sweating all of the time anymore. There is nothing worse as a, I'm going to say it, as a fat guy, (laughs) sitting outside and just sweating from sitting. Yeah. I mean, there are uh, a host of refreshing beverage options to cool you down on a hot day. But you know what? I think I like all of them on a not as hot day, I too. Know. I feel like I, I just sweat them out is what I do. It's it's a great time of year we're entering. So I think I'm I'm all eager with anticipation for fall sports. Oh, yeah. I, it's It's when baseball is happening, when football is kicking off. This is really the best time for sports, I think, because you've got baseball playoffs coming up. You've got college football that just started the nfl is going to start here as well mm-hmm. we're even talking about like preseason nba coming up i'm an nba fan still it's hard to be an I'm NBA still fan. an nba fan i love basketball played at a really high level and in the nba i always joke because people love co- college basketball but i like it when professional <laughs> players make a jump shot yeah 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 i'm, <laughs> I'm with you on that now i i like college football better than the nfl NFL playoffs are pretty great, but college football, there's something about it. You just, you can't beat it. Yeah, there's a, there's an, do you think that that'll be changed with the uh, players having the right to make money off their likeness now? I think players have been paid for ages. It's just going to be allowed. It'll be like the top tier players are the only ones that'll probably make a lot, right? I don't know. I mean, you've seen some of these, uh, some of these people that you've never heard of that are getting deals with Nike now. So, I think everybody's getting paid some. And maybe it'll be like, you know how Olympic athletes are supposed to be amateurs too, for the most part? Almost all of them have contracts with Nike and Puma and Adidas and those kinds of companies. They all make a lot of money. So maybe it'll be like that and you just don't know about it. Because I don't know who the best pole vaulter in the United States is, but I bet they have a contract with Nike. I would imagine. I'm going to throw this out there at you and to our audience as well. I think, because we're talking about what we love about sports and this is a great time of the year. I just said that you can't beat college football. I think you can, though, actually. I'm going to contradict myself. You cannot beat playoff hockey. When does that start? It's in the spring, but <laughs> hockey season will be starting around the same time as basketball season, and that made me think, oh, wait, no, playoff hockey is awesome. Yeah, I'm a fan. Going to a hockey game? Oh. It's like baseball in that you can't really replicate the feeling of being at a live True. event True. from watching it on television and with both i would say i almost prefer minor league really really why uh, those guys aren't getting paid much they're there for the love of the game they're fighting to get to the next level and you know we've got literally fighting in hockey we're literally yeah <laughs> we've got uh toledo uh which is less than an hour down the road and they've got the world famous toledo mud hens you mm-hmm. you don't get any better than than the mud hens for minor league baseball And then right across the street at the Huntington Center, you've got the Toledo Walleye. I don't know. Minor league baseball and hockey playoffs. Those two are tough to beat. 
That's awesome. We got a lot to look forward to. Yeah. Fun stuff Great we should do. Great time of year. Great time of the year. Concerts are amazing to go to uh, in the early fall stages. Yeah, outside outdoor, shows. Outdoor venues, which is like all that's allowed all right of them now. now. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, those are awesome. I'm looking forward to it. Uh, I just feel good, man. Yeah. My demeanor changes quite a bit when fall weather starts to set in. After being just beaten into the ground by summer. <laughs> You know what we can do? Rain or shine, snow or sun, drink cocktails. Yes, sir. We sure can. (laughs) And we will. Today, we are drinking cocktails in a climate-controlled area. Yes, it's very nice in here. It's perfect cocktail weather inside the Blue Jay headquarters. Yes, in our new studio. Yes, where we're coming at you with a new drink that we have not introduced ever. I had never heard of until you looked it up. Because today we're doing a retirement rum time episode. Yeah. Uh, So we're doing a rum-based cocktail Caleb, what have you chosen for us today? Well, we have in other podcasts talked about how we've neglected rum for whatever reason. I don't know how we've managed to do more vodka drinks, which we despise, than rum. We're going to kind of even out the score here today. We went with the El Presidente today, and not many of you probably know what an El Presidente is. Uh, It's actually, I'll clear it up. It's Spanish for the president. Okay, well, you spoiled it. You took my thunder. I don't know what to do now with this, so... Let's just enjoy a couple of the presidents. El Presidente was a very popular drink at one point, Jason, and it's kind of fallen off. So, um, yeah, we, uh, we've we tried a couple variations of this one. So I'm excited. Um, we should do more rum drinks. We should do more retirement rum time. I, I think retirement rum time is great because we get to be a little bit like pirates, <laughs> um, enjoying some rum. And it's forcing us into rum. Most of the drinks that we drink are whiskey-based. Yeah. I think that's fair to say that that's where our heart is. So doing a retirement rum time forces us to venture outside of our comfort zone and try some stuff that maybe some guys that sailed the high seas enjoyed. Yeah. I think that's cool. You know, we should have been doing rum drinks all summer. This really feels like a summer (laughs) drink. Um, But anyway, what we're drinking today is the El Presidente. I'm going to go through the recipe here. El (laughs) Presidente! The president. We're drinking the president today. All right. So uh, before we get into history and all that, what are we drinking? If you're following along at home and mixing up a drink, if you've got some rum in the cabinet, one and a half ounces of white rum, three quarters of an ounce of dry vermouth or French vermouth, one quarter ounce of orange curacao. We used control for this one. Which You know, that's debatable if that actually counts, but it's pretty darn good. So I think it's an okay It's superior. (laughs) And two dashes of grenadine. So you're going to add the rum, the vermouth, the curacao, control. If you got triple sec too, that that will suffice. And the grenadine into a mixing glass with ice and stir until well chilled. Strain that into a cocktail glass and enjoy. Jason, we tried a couple of different recipes. Uh, The first one was with white rum. We used Bacardi, kind of a standby old faithful rum. What were your thoughts on that one? Well, it had a nice pink luster. <laughs> you know, it looked pretty classy in a cocktail glass. Most drinks do. Um, yeah. But the grenadine was given it a little pit, bit of a pink hue. And I thought it tasted good. You can tell when there's dry vermouth in something. Mm-hmm. And it's interesting to taste it with rum, a white rum, instead of us- like we usually have it with, a, with gin and a martini. Yeah. I could taste vermouth. I could taste rum. And it was surprisingly sweet. The grenadine is going to do that and the control yeah. too. Just a little bit of grenadine. I didn't taste the control a whole heck of a lot, but um, the grenadine definitely 
affects the flavor and the color of the drink. It mm-hmm. was a very pink drink. Yeah, very summery, I would say. It was light. Yeah. It was sweet. I could see sipping on that on the beach. Let me just say this. It went down fast. Yours went down really <laughs> fast. <laughs> My wife would probably enjoy that. She's um, She can't get off of the, retire- the last retirement rum time episode, the Mojito. Mojito. That's the drink that she requests most of the time if I'm going to mix up a drink at home. I'm going to try this because this is right up her alley. So the second variation that we did, and we're sipping on those right now, we totally changed this drink. Not really. We used a spiced rum or a dark rum in place of the white rum, and that's about it. But that makes a heck of a difference, doesn't it, Jason? I'd say it changed it up quite a bit. Even though instead of using a see-through rum, we used a dark rum, which made it obviously a lot darker of a drink. It looks more like a Manhattan. Yeah. Um, it looks super classy. The Part of this might be the quality of the rum, because that dark rum that we have, what's the brand? Uh, Do you remember? El Zacapo or something like that. It was the most expensive rum they had at our <laughs> liquor store. It's good. <laughs> it tastes really good. Yeah. And that changes it a lot. So I really like this a lot more than with the... Uh, just we used the Bacardi Superior, I think, is mm-hmm. what we used before. So it changes the profile. You know you're drinking a cocktail when yes. you have this version. Yes, you do. I think you could maybe, with the white rum, sneak that by somebody. It really doesn't seem like it's super alcoholic. Uh, yeah, it's a little trickier. It's a lot more summery, though. Yeah. This it seems a lot warmer. so fast. This, like you said, I think you know you're drinking a cocktail. Mm-hmm. You know there's some potency there. Bo, uh, who edits our episodes, is a big rum guy. I, Bo, check out, Z- I think, Z- Zacapo, Z-A-C-A-P-O. I think you're going to like this one, buddy. It's a good rum. It is a good rum. Um, and you know what? Going back to, way, way back to the Stealing Harvard episode, uh, when we did daiquiris, do you remember we did a white white rum daiquiri? Yes. And then the spiced rum mm-hmm. using this this rum right here. That just shows you the same bottle we've had for a long time. We haven't used it. <laughs> we, we have not done rum justice. Same kind of thing with daiquiris. I preferred the spiced rum or the dark rum. It adds some body, a little bit of strength and character. I don't know. I feel like the ladies might like the, the white rum version. You and, bigot. And the guys out there might like the, uh, the dark rum version. I don't know. If you like uh, light beach drinks, regardless of your gender, you're probably going to like the white rum version. It is a lot more like a daiquiri. Though it doesn't have the same taste profile as one. No. Uh, but this dark rum version of El Presidente is entirely different. So if you like a, a sturdier, stiffer drink. Sturdy is um, a good way to put if it. You like, if you like the way a nuanced and kind of complicated cocktail tastes, I think that you might gravitate towards this one more than a simple, more straightforward cocktail like the El Presidente with the white rum what i'm learning about rum is by just changing the rum in the drink it changes the entire character of the drink now i think that if you put uh dark or aged or spiced whatever you call it um rum into a mojito that's probably not going to work out great it probably isn't a mojito (laughs) it's probably not a mojito yeah but the other rum drinks that i've tried on air and off air if you want to change it up and you're you're a rum drinker if you want to spice things up Use spiced rum. <laughs> it's it, spicy. Yeah, it makes uh, it totally changes the character of a drink. So history, we always go into the history a little yeah. bit on on the cocktails. I've got a little bit of just just a little bit of this one from David Wondrich from Imbibe. 
I feel like there are certain people who review things that I, I gravitate towards their opinion. I tend to agree with a lot. You he's one tr- of them when you it comes can trust to him. And yeah. he's an, uh, just a delight to read. Oh, his it, prose is amazing. He is. He's quite a writer. So um, he wrote an article on the El Presidente, and he's talking about um, some of these old drinks that were really popular at one time, but they just didn't have. There was something about it that they, they weren't a lasting mainstay in the cocktail world for whatever reason. And this is one of those. So he, he says in his article in Imbibe magazine that this was first accurately described in a 1919 article in the New York Evening Telegram. Boy, that takes me back to the first episode, Jason. Where's your old timey voice? <laughs> Hello. <laughs> uh, this Cuban mixture of Bacardi and French vermouth was apparently christened in honor of Mario Garcia Menocal. I hope I'm saying that right. President of uh, Cuba from 1913 to 1921. All right. And <laughs> Wondrich, the way he describes it, was a man who didn't mind throwing a lip over a cocktail. See, what a great way to say that. The guy <laughs> likes cocktails. That's like uh, Hemingway. Boy, he, he didn't mind throwing his lip over a cocktail or 10. <laughs> so he, he says that uh, Cubans, a broadly temperate people, uh, had only recently learned to appreciate these American mixed drinks. But this one they really, really liked. So by the mid-1920s, this became very, very popular uh, in Cuba. And actually, before long, the Presidente was really one of the most popular drinks in the U.S. as well. And when diplomats from the U.S. and Cuba got together, this is what they drank. All right. Notably, Calvin Coolidge was offered one and declined in 1928. And apparently it was a scene. (laughs) (laughs) Come Uh, on, Calvin. Yeah, so... uh, I think prohibition is what probably knocked this mm-hmm. out of popularity. It just yeah. never came back for whatever reason. You know, we think about drinks that did make it like the Manhattan and the Martini, mm-hmm. and they had other things culturally going on around them that tied tied them to the culture. And so, you know, basically what he was saying was this is one of those drinks that had all the makings of a classic cocktail, but for whatever reason, it, it just didn't stick. Yeah. And, uh, you know, this is, it's a total surprise to me, uh, drinking this cocktail I, I didn't know what to expect really saw the ingredients thought it looks pretty simple it's not totally what i thought it would be i like it especially the spiced version yeah i i'm also a fan and it's you, you know how it's strange how things work out through history you don't you couldn't you couldn't call it if you were back in the day but when you think about it it does have all the makings of a standard cocktail we we talked about Embry's six six essential drinks yeah. or cocktails and uh-huh. This seems like it's close in there. It's it's like a mix of a sidecar, daiquiri, Manhattan, and yep. um, and it's really really enjoyable. You're right. It's got the makings of one of those essential cocktails. It's very it's basic, not in a bad way, um, but it. I mean, it kind of reminds me. Of, it's it's sort of like a rum Manhattan with a little bit of flair to it. Yeah. I, I don't know. It's good. I like it. I like the spiced rum version. I could see myself drinking more of this. Every time I have a rum drink, I go, why don't I drink rum more? Because bourbon and rye exist. That's <laughs> that's why. That's that's probably <laughs> it. Yep. So yeah, pretty good drink all in all. Nice thing about rum is rum's pretty cheap too. So this one's not going to break the budget at home yeah. if you're mixing one up. Even the nicest spiced rum that I could find was like 50 bucks. So yeah, that's not bad not at all. Terrible. And this is a tasty drink if you think about the the cost effectiveness of it. Which is something you do need to consider Yeah, if you don't want to run out of money in retirement. That's a good teaser, Jason. The other thing I was going to say, if you want to look like you're drinking a Manhattan but don't like rye or whiskey, here you go. Yeah, it looks, ex- <laughs> it looks exactly like a Manhattan in your cocktail glass. Yeah. 
So you you just mentioned running out of money in retirement. What are you talking about? What I'm talking about, Caleb, is some pitfalls that could ruin your retirement. All right. So this is about to get heavy, huh? This is. I think <laughs> I've had two of these El Presidentes. I'm ready to talk about retirement. It's time to talk finance. <laughs> cool. Yeah. So what I want to talk about today, Caleb, uh, is the risk of running out of money in retirement. There is a paradigm shift that happens when we throw that switch. We are used to making money, saving money, Mm -hmm. and putting that money aside so that we could spend it later. Well, eventually, you'll come to the point where you're going to stop your main job, your main source of income. And the reason that you saved all that money is so you can start drawing on it to supplement your income. And that's usually what we describe as retirement. Nowadays, that's changing. And it, it just, you know, you may you may be working a different job uh, that provides a bulk of your income. You just have the f- freedom and flexibility to change to that. Mm-hmm. Uh, or you just straight up retire early at like 50 years old and you just start living off of your own investments instead of worrying about Social Security or pensions or that sort of thing. That time... When you switch to living off of your investments is what we're talking about. Uh-huh. And we've got, we, you and I have kind of narrowed down three main risks yeah. that folks will run into. So what you were describing there before, I think it, it's safe to say that we spend the majority of our lives, and some of us get a later start than others, but we spend the majority of our lives in accumulation mode, right? Yeah. That's a mindset. It's uh, it's It's really a habit that we form and it becomes kind of a it's just what we do we accumulate for that one day when we retire yeah i'm gonna put some money aside i'm gonna put money into my 401k or i'm gonna put money into my roth ira i'm gonna put money into my hsa my financial advisor tells me to do it my Mm -hmm. tax guy tells me i should do it we get into you know 30 years of accumulation mode and then all of a sudden put the brakes on and we we move into distribution mode and it's it's definitely like you said a paradigm shift. It's a change of mindset. Mm-hmm. I've noticed it's really tough for a lot of people to change. Absolutely, and that's why we've identified just that shift as the first risk to running out of money in retirement. Because I know we've got probably a lot of anecdotal evidence sure. from clients that we've helped. Like you and I, it's safe to tell everyone that we have not retired. Not yet. We, we are not planning on doing it in the next couple of years. Uh, we thankfully kind of like our jobs and we'll probably do it for a while, but we haven't ha- we haven't had firsthand experience with this, but we have seen it by proxy through our clients time and time again. A, a main point that brings folks to us, to a professional financial planner, is throwing that retirement switch. I want to stop my job. I want to make sure I'm going to be okay. And that's what we help folks with. So as a result of that, we get to see a lot of different people's psychology as they do that, the things that they're concerned with, the things that they're not concerned with, and that yeah. varies from person to person. But it is a big change of pace yeah. to go from saving to spending out of your savings as your primary source of money. Yeah. And I, th- I so I think it's safe to say the bulk of our business, the bulk of our clients here are people who we are introduced to and they're in the midst of making this, this shift, this change. Mm-hmm. Usually... I mean, we we both have clients. Uh, we all have clients here who uh, are young. They're getting after it. They're putting money away. We're helping them every step of the way. But I would say the majority of my clients are people who are looking for advice when when it's time to change the paradigm, 
when it's time to make that mindset change, in a nutshell, we do help people make this change. It's a lot harder for most people than what you would think it is. Absolutely. You would, you would think that you're putting money away for retirement. You've got this goal that you you've got tunnel vision, you're focused on it, and you know, you think you're gonna you're gonna flip the switch because it's what you've been preparing for. That's been the end game the whole time. But we've noticed a lot of folks have a hard time actually flipping that switch and changing their mindset. Mm-hmm. And like you said, this is probably the first pitfall and really one of the things that could cause you to run out of money in retirement. Yeah. So picture, if you will, you are average saver American. You know that it's good to live on less than you make mm-hmm. and you do a good job saving money. You have a fully funded emergency fund. You save money into an IRA. You save money into your employer plan and you work until, let's just say, 62 years old mm-hmm. and you think, I think I have enough to retire. So you talk to a financial advisor and they're like, hey man, do it. You can retire. Good job. And you retire. In our experience, we see that person want to continue to save. How often have we said like the way that you are in your accumulation phase of life is probably how you are going to be in retirement. I've said it a hundred times on this podcast. You don't change who you are. You don't change your makeup as a person because you flip the switch. Because you change your status from full-time employee to retired, <laughs> that doesn't change. You. So spenders are spenders, savers are savers. Right. So here's the problem that you have when you flip that switch. You agree with your financial advisor, or maybe you figured it up on your own, how much money you need to take out of your retirement accounts mm-hmm. a year or a month or however you decide to do it, and then you do it. And then because you're such a good saver, you save some of that money and you pop it into a savings account. Or back into an investment account or something. So you've essentially taken money that's working for you, right? Taken it out, paid the taxes on it, put less into your savings account where it's not working for you. <laughs> Inflation is eating it up, right? That's a good way to flip the script. Take, yeah. you know, take an account, take uh, a strategy that's working and growing and flipping it into something that's not working or growing for you anymore. Yeah, so... When you flip that switch in retirement, you should stop saving? I'm not saying that. I'm not saying that. I'm not sure what I'm saying. <laughs> saving is good. See, it's hard for me too. I know and I can tell it's going to be hard. It'll be hard for all of us when we get to retirement. But really, you've already saved. It's really a question of allocation. You have saved your money for retirement income. You have saved your emergency fund. You're done when you retire. And you might be working some still and and saving some money out of your income from like work, earned income is different. If you've got, let's just say all your money is saved up in your 401k. You're a 401k millionaire. You got a million dollars in your 401k Mm -hmm. and you retire. And if you decide that you're going to do use the 4% rule and you're going to take $40,000 a year out of your 401k and that's all the income that you need, but you save $5,000 of that a year, you're actually doing yourself a disservice. Yeah. So I think the question that you just asked me that I, I'm not sure what I was, I was just trying to trick you into saying no, saving I, is bad. Yeah. I, I <laughs> Yes. What I'm saying, let's redefine saving. Okay. So taking money from from you know a place where it's working for you it's you know let's say you're averaging 8% a year right you take that out you pay taxes on it now you have 20% less let's just say and you put it into an account that's earning a real interest rate of 
negative <laughs> because of <laughs> Let's inflation. Let's just say zero. <laughs> right? So is saving a bad thing there? Well, I would say sticking money in that savings account is a bad idea if you already have a fully funded emergency fund. Right? Yeah. So what are some things that we can do? We'll keep the money working for you. Leave it invested. Leave it tax deferred. Yeah. Okay. So let's talk about, and this is, I, I think, more often than not, what we find is not, you know, someone who's taking money out at 62 and paying taxes. We're not saying take the money out, pay taxes, and then reinvest it. Okay. Keep it tax deferred. But what about when Uncle Sam says you have to start taking money out? You're talking about required minimum distributions. Required minimum distributions or mandatory what's the MRD is the other one I hear mandatory required distributions. I don't know. There's different ways of saying it required minimum distributions. I think are one of the the big reasons that people take money out and then it sits in a savings account. It doesn't do anything anymore. Mm-hmm. Your earning power, your, your, the power of your dollar there has decreased significantly. So we're not talking about taking money out of retirement accounts if you don't need it and then parking it in another investment account. That'd be silly. If you're going to do that, you might as well do a Roth conversion at that point. Uh, well, yeah, there's better options. It, really, it comes down to people basically create an income stream in retirement. That's what they're really... You're, we've, we're used to working and getting paid every two weeks yeah. or every month. You want an income stream and it feels safe. So a lot of people like to set up that income stream in retirement. And if, if they've got a million dollars saved in a 401k, a lot of advisors will sell them an annuity that basically gives them a fixed return. A guaranteed. guaranteed. And, a pension, and if you will. that is usually what I see people over save off of because you actually, you don't need, if you don't need $40,000 a year in yeah. income, then you should leave it. You've saved it. And, leave it saved. And you shouldn't pay for a guarantee that you don't need. Which is what we see with those programs, yeah, by the way. A- absolutely. But I, I see people habitually, like you, you're, just, you're just used to having an income and you're used to saving from that income and that's the prudent thing to do. And I think what I'm saying is in retirement, that's actually not a prudent thing to do. Well, part of our the last retirement room time we did when we talked about five rules that you you must do before retirement or things you must do, Yeah, and one of them is you need to have your debt's paid for and you need to have an emergency fund and sinking funds. Yes. Uh, so if you don't have those, then yeah, you're going to need to save. But if you followed those rules before you retired, save, you're done saving. You saved. You're we're, done. So we're talking about chronic savers here. And that's not the problem for chronic savers. The issue is taking money out of an, uh, a producing asset, putting it somewhere where it's not producing. So I, I guess in Absolutely. a nutshell, what I'm trying to say is... If you have to take it out, I understand it. I understand yeah. that you've got to take it out. We want to be compliant with the IRS. You sure as heck don't want them knocking on your door. But does that mean parking it in a savings account? Okay, well, there's a myriad of things that you can do with it. I have mm-hmm. a few ideas. One that's very common for investment folk like us to say, put it back in the markets, invest it again. Here's an idea. Spend it. It's not doing anything for you in your savings account. And when I say spend it, that is a bad word for savers. But do you have kids? Do you have grandkids? Do you wish to leave them money? Well, maybe you should watch them enjoy some of it now. Maybe instead of creating mm-hmm. ah memory when you pass, why not make memories with them now? I find, Jason, that I have a hard time with these saver types in retirement. I'm trying to tell them, take more out. Spend some of this money. Enjoy <laughs> it. You have worked your whole life for it. Yeah, right? don't, You're going don't take to it be out okay. Save it. Figure out something to do with it. You know, a great use of required minimum distributions that you don't want to take is to donate it. Absolutely. Jason, I had an appointment <laughs> right before we sat down to do this podcast. 
that was my recommendation. What do I do with these stupid required minimum distributions? I have to take the money out. It's earning here. I pay taxes and then it goes into my checking account and I just get mad that I see it earning nothing in the bank. And I say, do you guys, are you charitably inclined? These were some prospects. And they say, we give money to this hospital Mm -hmm. and this church. And I say, great, let us write the check for you. It's called a qualified charitable distribution. And that's not what this episode is about, but that's a great solution for when you have to take money out of your retirement accounts and you don't want to. It's ideas for these chronic savers, for sure. Yeah. Why would you take it from one place, pay the taxes on it, put it in an account that's earning nothing, and then write a check to charity of choice where you're not getting the tax write-off probably mm-hmm. anyway because of the standard deduction. Yeah, you're probably at. not able to deduct it. Yeah. Kill two birds with one stone. Satisfy Uncle Sam. Take it out. When you make that charitable contribution and it goes from your IRA to the charity of your choice, you check two boxes. You've satisfied the IRS's requirements and you won't pay taxes on it. So think about the giving power there. You can give more. I don't want to go off on a tangent. I think qualified charitable distributions are awesome. We have this set up for a lot of folks. They're amazing. You can give up to $100,000 a year per person through these programs. I mean, it's it's fantastic. But this is, it's just one of the things that you can do rather than, I, I, I hate to see it, take money out of something that's working for you, pay taxes, and put it somewhere where you're getting a negative a, a real negative rate of return. Yeah. And, and I get it. In that situation of, of required minimum distributions, you're forced to do it. I see people do it just because they're used to saving. Um, so that's that's the first risk, Caleb. The first risk to ruin your retirement is not figuring out that you switched from accumulating to spending. Yeah. And uh, a lot of it is really just poor planning. You don't have an accurate representation of of uh, what you're going to need to spend because we basically spend whatever we get. Like our expenses seem to match our income sometimes. Yeah. Have you ever for- noticed if you get a raise at work, there's no extra money in the bank account. You just buy more stuff. Yeah. And if you're a good saver, you save 10% no matter what. So you just save. And um, I'm just begging people to think of when they flip that switch, you've already done the saving. All you need to do is take money out when you need it. You need to be responsible. So have a good plan. Caleb, that brings us to the second topic. Yeah. Now, I would say the first one is one of those things that just kind of irritates me a little bit. And um, it's because I don't like to see people um, just, I, I don't know, like savings accounts and things like that. We know they're not. I, I, that, that drives me nuts. Okay. Mm-hmm. It's probably not super detrimental to your retirement. It's not going to wreck your retirement. The second one is something that can really have a, a big impact on your retirement, and that would be taking withdrawals from the wrong places. And we're talking about taxes here, folks. Yeah, this is the tax section. And if you've saved, you've done a really good job, you and now it's time to retire, you maybe have several different account types. So we're talking about folks that have a traditional IRA or, or a traditional 401k that they saved money pre-tax. And when you take money out of that, you're going to pay ordinary income tax rates. And people might also have Roth IRA money uh, that is already been taxed and they should be tax deferred when they take money out. And folks will probably also have just regular old taxable accounts that get taxed as capital gains. Yeah. Taxable, tax deferred, tax free. That's what we'll refer to them as. Yeah. It's funny because I think that a lot of times we think, well, this is my retirement money. And we're probably referring to all tax deferred stuff. 
you don't even consider the money sitting in the savings account that you've overfunded because you're a crazy saver. <laughs> you might not consider those, you know, that TD Ameritrade account that you started and, you know, you've held some stocks and boy, they did really good after COVID too, right? Um, so, you know, you just, you get tunnel vision and you think, well, these are my retirement accounts. This is where my retirement income's coming from. There is a real impact that taxes are going to have on how you withdraw and where you withdraw money from. There's kind of an old rule of thumb that you take money from your taxable sources first. That would be your checking savings, your non-qualified brokerage accounts, things of that nature, CDs, and then your tax-deferred stuff. So your 401ks, your IRAs, your uh, 403bs, things of that nature, and then your tax-free stuff, your Roth IRAs, your muni bonds, stuff like that, right? So Jason, how can you really wreck things by taking from the wrong place first? Well, what happens in retirement usually is your income drops. So your income tax rate drops. Sometimes. Sometimes. <laughs> if, if your income actually drops. If you decide early on in retirement that you're going to make a large purchase, which ha happens a lot of times when you're young in retirement, like that's when you're going to buy the camper or the investment property or go on the really big extravagant vacation. Or the car that's going to last you for your whole yeah, retirement. Yeah, the, we the, hear that the last the car you're ever going to buy. <laughs> So you're, if you're going to drop fifty or a hundred thousand dollars early in retirement, where you take your money from really matters a lot. Yeah, Jason. So if you take fifty thousand dollars out for that camper you've always wanted, and you take it from your that's a cheap camper. Well, yeah, that's true. <laughs> Let's say you take that from your tax deferred, your IRAs. Mm -hmm. What's the tax impact there? Well, if I took it out of my IRA or my 401k, I pay ordinary income taxes on that extra $50,000 that I just took that year. Right. On all of it, right? All of it. So on top of maybe a social security or a pension that you have as well, mm -hmm. you're likely to be pushed up into another tax bracket. Yes, right? very likely. Yeah. So let's talk about a different way of doing this possibly. Okay. Well, money in a savings account, right? You settle up on that every year with a 1099 if your bank is sending you a 1099. Most of the time, you're not making enough to even get a 1099 <laughs> for that. So you're basically settled up there. So those overfunded savings accounts, well, that's an obvious, okay? That's the first place you look for things like that. But let's talk about the difference in, you know, let's say you have a TD Ameritrade account that you've got a couple of stocks in. That's non-qualified. It's just some extra money you threw in there at one time. Well, you've got some capital gains in there because the, the accounts have grown, right? But hopefully, depending on your social security and your pension and maybe required minimum distributions, all those things that play into your taxable income, your capital gains tax rate may be very favorable compared to your ordinary income tax rate. Usually it is. Right. So if you take $50,000 out of there, you might be paying taxes on a much lesser amount or in a much lesser bracket. Yeah. And you might even be taking some of your principal out of that as well. So not paying any taxes back on that. And, and that's one of the reasons I think for those big purchases, you want to definitely look at taxable accounts first. Again, if you're taking a large amount, you're probably dipping into some of your cost basis already, what you initially started with and have already paid taxes on. Why would you push yourself into a higher tax bracket? Jason, if you need 50000 for the camper... Newsflash, you got to take more than 50000 out of an IRA to get there, don't you? Yeah, they're going to withhold taxes, uh, the custodian, when you take money out of the IRA because you got to pay income taxes. Yeah, and, and if they don't withhold taxes, you will be paying taxes later. You're going to pay hitting them. that account again. Yeah, and, and your income tax rate, ordinary income tax rates are probably going to be higher than capital gains rates. And, it, and if you take more than $50,000 out, you might be pushing yourself up a couple of tax brackets yeah. depending on how you file. You could be talking on the difference of, of tens of thousands thousands of dollars in your pocket at the end of that year just because you didn't think about the tax impact of your withdrawal 
And a lot of people don't think about that. I tell you what, some people that don't have to think about it are folks that have converted everything into Roths. Yeah, I was just going to say, you know what is the taxable, tax-deferred, tax-free? Hmm, I like tax-free the best. Jason. Yeah, let's. we should have as much money as possible in that one. So, okay, we, we know that tax-free is good. How do we get there? Because most Americans, most of their wealth, honestly, is in this tax-deferred bucket. Yeah, I, that's because of the proliferation of 401k plans and most and people really like having the tax break and really in your highest earning years, which are probably in your you're probably age, you know, 45 to 65 when you're making the most money you've ever made in your life, you have an income tax problem and you also have a shortfall saving for retirement, so it makes a lot of sense to defer your income into a retirement plan. So, so take the tax deduction now yeah. and pay the taxes later. Because the idea is when you are in retirement, you won't have as high of an income. Now, so your taxes might be low. That's <laughs> now, the idea. Now wait a second. And this is where I always say, if you think that you're going to be in a lower tax bracket someday, I have a newsflash for you. I personally don't think I'll ever be in a lower income tax bracket. And that's not a commentary on my income. It's a commentary on all the money that we're printing. And who's going to pay for this at some point? I don't see how taxes can remain the same or go down. So another reason why moving things to tax-free now could make a lot of sense for you. How do we do it? Roth conversions. Yeah. Our clients hear us talk about it all the time. Yeah, we, we talk about them a lot. And they're controversial because we're like, hey, you know what you should do? Pay more taxes right now. Yeah. You know who hates this idea? Most tax preparers. <laughs> CPAs. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, absolutely. We get a lot of pushback on uh, on this idea from from those folks because they don't want you to pay more taxes now. They want they want to get you the biggest refund now. That's their primarily their goal. Uh, let's be real honest. So when you bring an idea to the table, my financial advisor say says I should pay this much more in taxes now. <laughs> Why? So I don't ever have to pay taxes on this money again. So Jason, for a you know, 55-year-old, does a Roth IRA conversion make, make a lot of sense? Does it make more sense for someone in that range than someone who's, I don't know, in their 70s and taking required minimum distributions now? It probably makes more sense for the 55-year-old. It really depends. It, it depends on how much, how much money you've got and what your tax rate is now and what your tax rate is likely to be in the future. Whenever I ask folks if you think taxes are going up or down, Nobody says down. Nobody says down. Nobody says Nobody down. Nobody really honestly right believes now. that. And I, I, and I think it, it does seem obvious that taxes are going to have to increase somewhere. So for- I, I guess what I'm getting at is even at 55 years old, let's say, you're probably in the prime of your earning career, probably paying more in taxes than you ever have. It could still make sense to pay more now because you're looking at 20 years down the road before RMDs start and you're going to have to start taking money out. Do you think that you're going to be in a lower tax bracket? We don't have a crystal ball. Yeah. And the idea isn't that we're moving you up to the maximum tax bracket. Right. Like you might already be in that and we might think about it. And in your situation, it might still make sense. But if you're in you know, 15% effective tax rate, we could move you up to the fill up the rest of that bracket with yeah. extra income by doing a conversion. A Roth conversion is really kind of complicated and dangerous um, because yeah, don't try this at home. Yeah, you, you do need a <laughs> professional's help to do this. Um, but it is a great way to take money that has not yet been taxed, control the spigot on taxation right now yeah. so that you can lock in tax-free income later. Because I'll tell you what, my clients that have huge Roth accounts mm-hmm. compared to the rest of their wealth in retirement 
have a ton more freedom. Because if they want to spend $100,000 on something really awesome, they can take it out of that Roth and, and they don't have to care about, about taxes. taxes. Yeah. Whereas $100,000 is going to move you up a tax bracket when it comes out of a traditional 100%. IRA. 100%. <laughs> Not a 100% tax bracket, but it will move you up. <laughs> yeah. It will move you up. And, and I think what you said there is the key. Um, a Roth conversion could make sense. If you've got $500,000 in traditional IRA assets, but you've got 20 years to go, we're not saying pay all the taxes now in a super high income tax bracket. But right. this is a strategy over the course of 10 years or something like that that can make Definitely. a huge impact down the road. And not to nerd out on taxes or anything like that, but the required minimum distribution age has already been moved up from 70 and a half to 72 I think there's some real... There's rumblings, Caleb. There's some rumblings, and there's some some real hope that that gets pushed out to 75. Speaking of rumblings, there's some ideas that that could go away entirely because what came along with raising that RMD age was eliminating the stretch IRA, which is going to lead me to another point. Don't forget to let me come back to that, Oh, Jason. I'll let you talk about the stretch IRA. <laughs> the stretch IRA essentially was something that if you inherited a traditional IRA or a 401k from, let's say, a parent, right, and they were taking required minimum distributions, you could inherit that asset and now spread it out over your lifetime. It's a cal- The RMD calculation is based off of life expectancies. If you inherit an IRA at 40 years old, you're going to have to take out a lot less over time every year to clean that baby out. They raised the required minimum distribution from 70 and a half to 72, and with that, they eliminated the stretch, Jason. Now you have to take it out within 10 years. You have to settle up on the taxes. They don't care how old you are. It's got to be settled in 10 years, okay? Mm -hmm. Here's something to think about. If you're going to do your kids a favor, if you're going to do your heirs a favor, would they rather inherit an IRA that's already been settled up on, say a Roth, or something that they're going to have to pay taxes on over the next 10 years? And oh, by the way, most people pass away in their 70s or their 80s. And their kids are in their 50s or their 60s, also in the highest income tax bracket that they've ever been in and forced to take distributions. So yet another reason that these conversions can make a lot of sense. Absolutely. Paying no taxes is better than paying taxes. Yeah. <laughs> Duh. <laughs> so, so with a Roth, that's uh, a better, it's a better uh, asset to inherit, I would say. Yeah. And I I say it all the time. If we were born with expiration dates, we could plan this all out right. We could spend your last penny on your last day, but we don't know when we're going to go. So clients with assets most likely are going to pass some on. I always say, if you're going to do someone a favor, do them a favor. (laughs) Why wouldn't you look into a strategy that's going to cause you, yeah, maybe pay a little bit more taxes now, but in the grand scheme of things, less taxes in the long run. And oh, oh, by the way, for anybody that inherits it, it's settled up. It's done. You did them a favor. So folks need to consider the taxation of their accounts when they're making withdrawals in retirement. Absolutely. It can be the difference of thousands and thousands of dollars. And quite simply, you know, if you think about it, why would you not go in in another order? We talked about doing all the tax deferred and how that can really, you know, you can pay uh, unnecessary taxes and take away some more of your earning power by doing that. You know, it, maybe it goes without saying, but you you wouldn't want to tap into your Roths first, right? Because that is that's your biggest tool. That's tax free. That's accumulating and growing tax free. The more tax free income you have long run, the better off you are. So yeah, this is huge. Making tax mistakes on withdrawals could really crush your retirement. Absolutely, I see people do it all the time because they 
just want to spend the money. So yeah. <laughs> um, uh, it's something to watch out for. And it's something that we harp on all the time. Taxes are important. Yeah, there's another big one, though, Jason. And uh, we hear this a lot of times from uh, the insurance industry. <laughs> and, and sometimes this turns into a way to sell one of those annuity things. But uh, sequence of returns risk, Jason. Let's talk about sequence of returns. Yeah, this is number three in our risks to you running out of money in retirement. Uh, sequence of returns risk is a really academic sounding topic. And really, you can get lost in it. And, and a lot of financial scholars have done a lot of research on it. This has to do with safe withdrawal rates, if you ever yeah. hear about that. So the 4% rule. Uh, this have to has to do with guardrails. And you say 4% rule, Jason. And I remember whenever 5% was, was set in stone. A 60-40 yeah. portfolio with a 5% withdrawal, you'll never run out of money. It's really all over the place. Uh, but then we'll also run into the Guyton-Klinger guardrails uh, approach to all of this too, which, which did have a 5% safe withdrawal rate assumed in it. But basically, when we're talking about sequence of returns risk, we're thinking about this practically, and it's everybody's worst nightmare. I'm going to retire. So I retire right now, and I'm worried that tomorrow... The next great recession is going to happen. Yeah. And I am going to just be hosed because I saved up. Let's just use the million dollar example. I got a million dollars in my 401k. I talked to my financial advisor. He says the probability of me running out of money in retirement is very low based on all the things that I want to do. Let's do this. Wait, wait, wait. They printed out the 64 page report I, and it says I've got a 92% chance of not running out of money. That's right. The confidence interval is great. The Monte Carlo simula simulation <laughs> says that I got a 92% chance. I'm you know what confident. I'm asking? What about that 8%, Jason? Well, let's say it happens, That's Caleb. what scares me is the 8%. If you live in Murphy's Law world, if you are hypothetical guy and you live in worst case scenarios, I'm talking to myself here. I know I do this. This is for you. <laughs> yeah. And, and I, got, I got good news. I'll cut to the chase. Okay. Sequence of returns risk is real. It's dangerous. If you don't get any good returns for the first many years of your retirement, it is going to change your retirement plan. So practically speaking, right? Let's say I retire with that million dollars and we have two bad years in a row. Let's that just say it's 2008 and nine. Let's okay. say you go down uh, let's say you had a 60-40 portfolio and you drop, what would you drop? 30, 30%? Let's just say you go from a million dollars, $700,000 in that first year. But, but let's say- I still need income though, Jason. Yeah, you needed to take $40,000, $50,000 that year. Let's do the 5% rule. Yeah. You took $50,000 out and then it dropped. But my bills haven't changed. <laughs> you still need $50,000 the next year? Okay, so what percentage is that that I'm taking out? Well, now? that's higher. So you, so <laughs> the the idea with this is a, a lot of people look at sequence of re, uh, returns risk, and they're like, I'm I'm screwed. My plan says I'm going to take out fifty thousand dollars a year. Well, if if everything goes to heck, yeah, what we usually do is change. We make a change. You usually spend less in bad years. Well, wait, that sounds good if I have no debt. And I, I can live within my means. But what if I've got a bunch of debt? Well, then you shouldn't what? have retired. That's, a, <laughs> that's You need to listen to five things you must do before you retire. <laughs> that's right. Uh, I don't know, Jason. Sounds like I should go pay for an income. Uh, I should buy an annuity with an income rider because every year the market goes up, it's more likely that next year it crashes and I'm hosed. Caleb, that is the stupidest thing I've ever heard you say. No, that's actually not how things work out. So basically, with sequence of, re of returns risk, we are worried about 
the next 10 years after you retire. Um, and, and I did, I did a little reading on kitsis.com. And if you are a finance nerd, uh, Michael Kitsis and Jeff Levine and, uh, Derek Tharp, these guys have the most letters behind their name of anyone in, in financial planning. I think they're going for all 26. Yeah. Honestly. They, they know they, pro- I think, I think, uh, Levine has more than the entire alphabet. But anyway, they do some really good writing about this sort of thing and basically hammering out all the details and different hypotheticals. Um, and, but basically what it comes down to is, uh, we want to know what a safe distribution rate is. And I'll tell you what, uh, with that, the Kiplinger, um, if you if you say depends, Jason, no, it's it's between four and six percent. Mm-hmm. If 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 you move to higher than six percent of your total portfolio annually that you're taking out, you need to change something and get down to four percent. Okay, that's too much pressure on the portfolio, is what you're saying. Yeah, I'm just saying that if you have several bad years in a row mm-hmm. or a year at a time, you can reassess your withdrawals and change. And if you do this, you will still not run out of money. First of all, if one bad year is going to ruin your financial plan, you probably haven't saved enough for retirement. Yeah. Well, because what what basically you're describing is somebody that has... They retire and maybe like their first or second year in retirement, they need to make... They're like, uh, I decided to add a pool and add four rooms onto my house and a and, camper. And I bought a camper. And, and basically, they had a million dollars, but they spent 400000 of it in the first two years. Yeah. And then they had a sell off. So imagine that. Like, that's a, that's a good hypothetical, hypothetical to go through. You, if you spent 400000 out of a million, you have $600,000 left, and you were already planning on using $50,000. So you take another fifty, you got five fifty. And if you have a 40% sell off, now you have $300,000 ish. <laughs> and I love that. You just, you have no money. Yeah. You're out. I like to be even simpler with this. <laughs> if you have $100,000 and the market sells off 50%, how much do you have to make next year to be whole? A lot of people will instantly say fifty percent. Uh uh. No, that gets you to seventy five. Yeah, you were at a hundred. Great. Are you going to explain <laughs> the arithmetic and geometric no, mean no, 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 to no. clients? <laughs> uh, but I think that those are the things that are are meant to scare people. Mm-hmm. And these are a lot of the things that the ideas that are peddled by the insurance world. Which honestly, like that five percent withdrawal rate and all those kind of things, we hear yeah. that a lot from the insurance world. It used to be five percent a safe rate. And then it came down to four. And now we're told, well, look at where interest rates are and look at what bond return, you know, what, what yeah. kind of, what, what return are you going to get on your bond portfolio and all that? And I've heard Jason as low as 2.8%. And here's the problem I have with that. Last year, the market was up what? 31? Yeah, it was up a lot of percent. the year before that, it was up what? Also 31-ish? <laughs> oh, don't forget, we had a, a negative year the year before, like six to eight. Yeah. But then the year before that was up like 31 <laughs> So you're telling me I can only take out 2.8%? Well, that sounds like garbage. Well, if you're in a, a basic 60-40 portfolio that does have a lot of... If it's almost half bonds that are yielding one point half percent, then maybe. But but even with a generic 60-40 portfolio, this 4 to 6% of your net worth... And that that is to not affect the principal. We really just don't want to take any money out of there over your lifetime. And it's actually, I want to tell people, it's okay to have less money when you die than when you retired. A lot of people, like you said, we would hopefully bounce the check to the undertaker. Is that yeah. the, that's the, the old <laughs> adage? Um, so I, uh, sequence of returns risk is a big deal. If you spend irresponsibly in your first couple of years of retirement and you make no adjustments mm-hmm. because you're just like, I have a plan. I have a 64-page financial plan that said I can do it. And you do it and you make no changes and you have four years in a row that stink 
you are going to run out of money. Yeah. So you need to be able to adapt if if something happens. The good news is over 10 years is really what matters the most. And usually we have a lot better chance of good returns over a 10-year time horizon. Yeah. And if you've made your adjustments, you're going to still be okay. Basically, what we're worried about is not ever getting those really good returns that actually boost the performance of your portfolio. And if you have bad returns the first five years and you have to wait, but you still spent money like a crazy person, you don't have enough money to benefit from compounding later on. Right. Anecdotally, I have a story of where... So I had a uh, prospective client who was a doctor and he was uh, 50 years old, making great money. Um, and he said, I'm going to retire at 55. I said, great, let's let's talk about that. How do we make it happen? You know, at 55, you don't have social security. So we're going to have to self-fund retirement, right? No pension or anything like that. He says, I'll be fine. Uh, okay, tell me more. I have a million dollars in my 401k. Okay. So I asked him, all right, what, what are we making annually? Well, I I work, my wife stays home. I make about $250,000 a year. I said, okay, good income. You have a million dollars in your 401k. How much do you plan on spending in retirement? We're not taking a step back. I said, well, how much do you spend out of that 250000 Most of it. So you want to spend $250,000 in retirement. This is simple math. I said, you, how long do you want to be retired? Because you're not going to make it to your social security <laughs> check if that's the case. And he couldn't get that. So if he had a couple of 30% years in a row and he was pulling $250,000 out. Could it work for a little bit? Yeah. But the market returns over the last hundred years aren't 30%. They're more like eight. So I, I, we have a responsibility as financial advisors to tell people when, hey, you know, th- this doesn't make sense. Let's throw sequence of returns risk into that. Yeah. You might be retired for two years and, and looking for work. I, I find it really fascinating, though, you know, when you meet with folks and they, they're doing this on their own, they've done a great job of saving, and then they just don't have a real plan for withdrawing. Mm-hmm. And, you know, they say, I'm going to take this much out. And you go, how do you come to that number? I don't know. It seems reasonable. For some people, reasonable is 2%. And I'm saying you can spend more than that. You can take more than that. There's academic research behind all of this. Yeah. For others, I go, what makes you think you can sustain 9% withdrawals for the rest of your life? And you're planning on living another 30 years? Yeah. You know, you throw sequence of returns in there. Can it work out? Yeah. It doesn't look real good on that Monte Carlo simulation, right? Mm-hmm. But it's definitely something that you have to consider. I think the insurance industry has really, I don't want to say bad words, <laughs> has really made, um, made a lot of people do bad things or buy bad things that they don't need because of this. But it is something that we need to consider. Absolutely, Caleb. (laughs) Sorry. (laughs) I I want to distill it down for our listeners because I think we talked about a lot of really good things. So we talked about three reasons that your retirement will be ruined. And um, to, to distill those down, one is it's hard to shift from saving to spending out of your savings. Uh, it is also tantamount to, ta- to consider taxes when you are taking money out of your retirement accounts. And you need to be cognizant of sequence of returns risk. The call to action that I have for our listeners, Caleb, is to have a plan. It's simply that. Uh, you have to plan for each of these items. And the plan cannot be set in stone. You have to have levers to pull when stuff gets real. When you say have a plan, does that mean one of those 62-page documents? The document is worthless. You really need... 
if this, then this, if this, then this, if this, then this. And it's living, it's active. Your plan is going to change because we can't predict the future. You can have some ideas of what you're going to do and what your options are, and they really are spend less or spend more. And I think, honestly, the thing that ties all of these together, Jason, and the solution for these three pitfalls is flexibility. Yeah. You you have to, we talk about uh, withdrawals with guardrails and things of that nature. You have to be flexible. You don't want to go into retirement so strapped that the income that we can generate for you is struggling to make ends meet because you're servicing all this debt. Go back to the five things you must do before you retire if you're at that stage. But if you've got flexibility in all of these areas, again, when it comes to a plan, we have plan B and plan C. We've got some audibles we can call at the line of scrimmage if and when returns are are not great. But in years like we've had over the last few years, and they've been great, make hay while the the sun shines, right, Jason? Absolutely. So flexibility is huge. Absolutely huge. Huge. A flexible plan, not necessarily a static 62-page document. Well, that's why I am an advocate of having a relationship with a financial planner. Uh, Obviously, I'm biased. Is that why you... I think that that we can help, Caleb. (laughs) I think we can help. And I think that you should pay us Um, just because you you have to be able to make those changes and think of every option that is available. And there's a lot. There's a lot of things to do. So just getting a plan and trying to execute it blindly, like without regard to what's happening around you, is irresponsible. Well, Jason, we said a lot of words today, didn't we? So many words, Caleb. I think we blasted through this whole episode and we can just go right to the end. I think so. We don't have time for much more than this. Thanks for having a drink with us this week, folks. It's time to close out the tab. If you have questions or a topic you want addressed on the Old Fashioned Finance podcast, be sure to email us at speakeasy at oldfashionedfinance.com. We'd love to hear from you. Don't forget to share the show with someone you love or just someone who needs a little money muddling themselves. You can stay up to date with the latest action by following us on Facebook and Instagram. Old Fashioned Finance is brought to you by Blue Jay Financial Group. That's bluejfg.com and produced by Pottery Studios. We've been your hosts, Jason and Caleb. Cheers. Blue Jay Financial Group, LLC, Blue Jay, is a registered investment advisor registered with the state of Ohio. Registration does not imply a certain level of skill or training. The presence of this advertisement on this podcast shall not be directly or indirectly interpreted as a solicitation of investment advisory services to persons of another jurisdiction unless otherwise permitted by statute. Follow-up or individualized responses to consumers in a particular state by Blue Jay in the rendering of personalized investment advice for compensation shall not be made without first complying with jurisdiction requirements or pursuant to an applicable state exemption. All verbal and written content on this presentation is for information purposes only. Opinions expressed herein are solely those of Blue Jay, unless otherwise specifically cited. Material presented is believed to be from reliable sources and no representations are made by our firm as to other parties' informational accuracy or completeness. All information or ideas provided should be discussed in detail with an advisor, accountant, or legal counsel prior to implementation. Hey, Caleb, what are your top five favorite bands of all time? What? (laughs) Are you springing this on me at the end? I have three seconds left. Go, go, Uh, go, go. uh, Pink Floyd. Uh, Pink Floyd. Uh, (laughs) Did you stop it?